So last week, we saw that after the time of, of fasting and presumably praying, Esther comes in and she prepares a feast for the king. She prepares a feast for Haman as well. And then the king asked her, Esther, what, uh, why have you done this? What can I offer you up to the half of my kingdom? And she says, well, let's, let's pause on that. Come back tomorrow for another feast, and then I will tell you. So Esther is using a, a delay tactic to really bring in the, the king and Haman here. But we said more importantly, Haman had to have some time to build his own gallows first. And so... Haman leaves, he goes out, and then once again, Mordecai refuses to show him the honor that he so richly deserves. And so he, he goes into this period of mourning and laments that even though he's pretty much as rich as can be, he has all of these sons, he is second in command in the most powerful empire in the world, his life is ruined, his life is miserable because this one man will not show him honor. And then we may point it out that his wife Zeresh and his friends, uh, Zeresh in particular, makes a, uh, a suggestion that would make Je- uh, Jezebel proud in saying that, uh, well, there's this man. He's causing you misery. There's a problem. He won't give you something that you want, like Naboth would not give Ahab. He said, the solution, just kill him. And so problem solved. Although then uh, Haman obviously agrees with this, has these gallows that are 75 feet high built, these gaudy gallows, and now he is going to go see the king and get the king's edict to actually murder Mordecai. Uh, One of the other points that we made last week or that I argued was that uh, it seems to be kind of the turning point in Esther's life too is in chapter 5 or at the end of chapter 4 whenever she decides to become Uh, fully commit herself to being a a member of of God's covenant people. Uh, We talked about how uh, all of the occurrences when Esther is mentioned by name in the book, um, 14 of those she is called Queen Esther, and all but one of those 14 come after the beginning of chapter 5. So it's really, she's taking hold of her title as, as the queen of God's people, even though she is paradoxically the queen of the Persians at this time. And so... Actually, in my, my yearly Bible reading this week, I, I was able to make a, another connection with this that I wasn't, didn't point out last week. In my, I use a, um, a five-day-a-week reading plan that goes through uh, the Old Testament in chronological order, but the New Testament kind of jumps around a little bit, and so you're in both each day. But in my New Testament reading, one of the, the readings that I was in this week was Hebrews chapter 11. And over in in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, in verses 23 through 28, we get kind of this exact same connection with with Moses. We see the same thing with Moses. So in Hebrews chapter 11, 23 through 28, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. That's interesting. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. 
By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the danger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith he kept a Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. So we kind of see the same pattern with Moses here. Moses is, he, like Esther, is enjoying all the luxuries of being a high-ranking official in, in a very powerful kingdom at the time. He is not persecuted really in any way. Esther is not being persecuted right here. But we see uh, in the same exact way as Esther, Moses actually becomes a leader at the time when he decides to become, to identify as a member of God's people. And so there's this nice mosaic parallel with Esther here that I, I actually didn't see before, before my Bible reading for this past week. So I wanted to kind of bring that to y'all, even though that's what we talked about last week. But this week... After Haman is depressed because Mordecai refuses to honor him, we're going to, in this chapter today, we're actually not, not going to talk about Esther at all. She's not mentioned in this chapter. There are no developments made with her. But we do get some really great literary irony and ominous pronouncement coming from a very unlikely place and perhaps the greatest display of the providence of God in the entire book. But before we dive into the Word of God, let's remind ourselves of why we are studying the lives of these people in Persia 2,500 years ago. The book is dripping with the unapparent and hidden providence of God. God's ultimate purpose of bringing the Messiah into the world is still in jeopardy from a human perspective anyway. The Lord of all needs to sprinkle in a little insomnia. So Esther chapter 6, reading the whole chapter. On that night, the king could not sleep, and he gave orders to bring the book of memorable deeds, the Chronicles, and they were read before the king. And it was found written how Mordecai had told about Bigthana and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs who guarded the threshold and who had sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And the king said, what honor or distinction has been bestowed upon Mordecai for this? The king's young men who attended him said, Nothing has been done for him. And the king said, Who is in the court? Now Haman had just entered the outer court of the king's palace to speak to the king about having Mordecai hanged on the gallows that had been prepared for him. And the king's young men told him, Haman is there, standing in the court. And the king said, Let him come in. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, What should be done to the man whom the king delights to honor? And Haman said to himself, Whom would the king delight to honor more than me? And Haman said to the king, For the man whom the king delights to honor, let royal robes be brought, which the king has worn, and the horse that the king has ridden, and on whose head a royal crown is set. And let the robes and the horse be handed over to one of the king's most noble officials. Let them dress the man whom the king delights to honor, and let them lead him on the horse through the square of the city, proclaiming proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then the king said to Haman, Hurry, take the robes and the horse, and as you have said, do so to Mordecai the Jew, who sits in the king's gate. Leave out nothing that you have mentioned. So Haman took the robes and the horse, and he dressed Mordecai and led him through the square of the city, proclaiming before him, Thus shall it be done to the man whom the king delights to honor. Then Mordecai returned to the king's gate. But Haman hurried to his house, mourning and with his head covered. And as Haman told his wife Suresh and all his friends everything that had happened to him, then his wise men and his wife Suresh said to him, If Mordecai, before whom you have begun to fall, is one of the Jewish people, 
You will not overcome him, but you will surely fall before him. So what unfolds in this chapter is one of the more comical scenes of the Bible. There are a few uh, comical scenes in the Bible, one of which is what Ben preached on a few weeks ago, the the, uh, showdown with Elijah and the prophets of Baal, whenever Elijah starts to kind of sarcastically poke him a little bit. I always thought that's that's pretty funny. But this is a, a pretty comical scene, too. While, while Haman has just instructed his, constructed his gaudy gallows on which to hang or impale Mordecai in the morning, the king actually plans to honor Mordecai. You'd be hard-pressed to find a more fitting example of pride coming before a fall. Haman's humiliation is brought about by a series of quote-unquote chance events that if we were to examine them just one by one individually, they are extremely unremarkable. The king just happens to have a, a sleepless night. We've all had sleepless nights before. And the other ironic thing about this is that his sleepless night, remember back in chapter 5, is after a, a day full of feasting and, and drinking wine, nevertheless. So if, if you've ever, you know, after your, your Thanksgiving meal, your favorite thing to go do uh, is to take a nap. Four kids, that'll never happen anymore. But that is one of the things that we like to do after a big meal, or even after he's had presumably quite a bit of wine. You think he would probably be, you know, able to sleep quite well. But the king has this sleepless night after this giant feast. He, when he's awake, he just happens to have the records of the royal court read aloud to him. Uh, maybe. Maybe this is his version of counting sheep. Seems like it, it would make you fall asleep, right? Uh, maybe he was trying to, you know, he's awake, so he's trying to make the most of an extra few hours of maybe to get some work done. These two, two opposite ends there. But we don't know. But he does have the royal records just happen to be read to him by these, the eunuchs that are there. And the eunuchs just happened to come upon the record of an event that happened at least a few years earlier. This is not recent. It's not you know, something that happened to his father, Darius, or anyone else. Uh, just a few years earlier, it just happened to be where he's reading from. But you see, without this completely unremarkable chain of events, Mordecai is likely doomed on the next morning. And then the rest of the Jews shortly thereafter. But we know that a higher force could not let that happen. Then we go on to find out that the king, he is aghast to find out that no honor has been bestowed upon, upon Mordecai for his previous act of loyalty. We touched upon this a little bit in the other, you know, whenever uh, Mordecai first does this at the end of chapter 2. But the Persian kings were actually uh, very quick to lavishly reward subjects for acts like this. Um, Herodotus tells us of two specifically, one of them being uh, something very similar that Mordecai did. Uh, It was a a plot against the king's brother. I can't remember. I didn't write it down. This was either Darius or it was Xerxes. There was an assassination plot against the king's governor. This man foiled it, who was, seemed to be no relation to anyone, and so the king immediately promoted him to be a governor over a large section of land. So the Persian kings usually did you know, lavishly reward those who displayed these, these acts of loyalty. But for some reason, Mordecai has been overlooked. The situation must be rectified immediately, Xerxes says. So the king decides to call in what he sees as an impartial judge here, our villain Haman to decide what specific perceives should be shown towards the king's current favorite person. 
After a brief inner monologue of convincing himself that the king has to be talking about him, who else would he be talking about? He's just come from this private feast with the king and the queen. The king obviously loves him. Who else would the king be talking about? And Haman also knows that he he couldn't be promoted any higher. He's already pretty much the second-ranking official in the kingdom. We've already seen that uh, he's obviously very rich. He even stated in the last chapter he's rich. He has many sons. What else could he want? Honor. That's what Haman wants. Haman wants honor. This is what he grasps at, the thing that he covets more than anything else. Even though he seems to have honor, at least for everyone other than Mordecai, he wants even more honor. Honor that is equal to the king himself. He wants to be dressed in the king's robes. He wants to ride on the king's horse. He wants to have a high-ranking official lead him through the city. And the people proclaiming, this is the one who the king honors. So he wants honor equal to the king himself. In this, Haman is an antitype to Christ, who Paul says in Philippians 2, 6 through 7a, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Christ, being fully God, had every right to claim the throne. But he, taking upon a human form, humbled himself for our sake. Haman's the antitype to this. And then Haman, no doubt begrudgingly, fulfills the king's request and dresses Mordecai in the royal robes and parades him through the city. Mordecai's patience has finally paid off. He finally has his day in the sun and is favored in the eyes of the king. Haman returns to his house, mourning once more. At the end of the last chapter, he's mourning. At the end of this chapter, he is mourning again. Then we get in the last paragraph of the chapter, a prophetic announcement from a strange place. Haman's wife, Zeresh, who now seems to connect the dots in a way that Haman has not been able to see before. She seems actually surprised to find out that her husband's nemesis is a Jew. She knew his name, Mordecai, but apparently she did not know that he was a Jew. This is new information. We know about those people. We've heard how they came up from Egypt. We've heard how easily they conquered the land of Canaan. We've heard how they could not be completely wiped out by any of the surrounding nations. We've heard how the Babylonians couldn't destroy them. We heard how Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego weren't consumed by the flames of the furnace. We've heard how Daniel wasn't killed by the lions that were placed there by Xerxes' father Darius. We've heard about how the God of the Jews, the Holy One of Israel, Jehovah Jireh, we've heard of him. Obviously, I'm engaging in a little bit of extra-biblical historical fiction here. But at the very least, Zeresh knows what we know. The Jews are going to be preserved. We don't know why she knows this, but she knows it. And Haman has to fall before Mordecai because Mordecai is a Jew. Haman's pride and the hate for God's people led to his shame and ultimately to his death. We, in turn, should not fear those who persecute the church, but rather pity them, stand strong against them, and pray for them. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about the the pastor in in Canada who is in jail for preaching the gospel for, for refusing to close his church. I don't know if y'all heard this week, but they actually sentenced him to two years in prison. And so um, his conditions of release was that he would not preach anymore. And uh, according to his wife, he is prepared to 
sit there. Apparently all the inmates in prison love him, and he's going to preach the gospel in prison. We need to be praying for this man. What a beautiful, beautiful representation for the church. Also, I didn't know if y'all saw the week after he got put in jail, the church had to turn people away because there were so many people there. They were overflowing through the parking lot. And uh, I'm assuming the other pastor, there's two of them, he's probably going to be under some hot water too. But I just wanted to mention that. We do need to pray for him. He, he seems to be using this as a, an opportunity to share the gospel and is, is taking it the way that a, a good, good believer of God should. His name is, uh, uh, Coates is his last name. I think his first name is James. James Coates, yeah, I think that's right. And so, and not only that, I'm sorry, that's good. Yeah, them too. Yeah, the whole church. Yeah, yeah, it's uh, no, it's very inspiring what him and that church are, are doing right now. Yeah, violating the health orders of Alberta. Yeah. Hmm. Alberta, Canada, Edmonton. Yep. So, by all accounts, this sleepless night of Xerxes is the pivot point of the book. Now, it isn't the the pivot point of Esther's life. We've we've made the case that that point actually occurs at the end of chapter four, when when Mordecai provokes her to uh, examine herself and see why she has actually come to the kingdom. But the sleepless night is the pivot point of the narrative of the story. This leads to a literary device popular in Hebrew literature called a chiasm. Hal's talked about this before in some of his Sunday school lessons. And this is where each element of a story has a parallel, but the parallels are responded to in reverse order. So if you got your handout, I've got a couple of more right here if anybody needs one. Um, Uh, so there, there's a couple of, of chiasms here in, in Esther. Uh, the first one that I'm, I'm showing here is if you if you look at this, and this is uh, directly copied from Karen Jebb's book, who I've referenced a couple times. The first one uh, shows the the parallels back and forth. It starts making kind of a U shape here. We start in in chapter three. The king gives Haman his ring, and then later on, once we'll get to this, in chapter 8, verse 2, the king gives Mordecai the same ring all the way down to um, kind of where we, we were last week and where we are today. We've got Zeresh advises Mordecai's death, and then Zeresh predicts Haman's ruin. Uh, previously, we've got Mordecai goes crying through the city, and then uh, in this same chapter, we've got Mordecai led through the city in honor. So we've got this this chiasm here all throughout Esther. And then another interesting thing in this next next chart down there is that the pivot point of the book creates another chiasm involving all of the feasts in Esther. And there are quite a few. Esther is a book full of feasts. At at both the the beginning and the end of the book you see here, there are a couple of pairs of feasts that form these bookends of of the chiasm. In chapter 1, Xerxes has a banquet for the nobles of the empire, and then the next day has a banquet for the men of Susa. And another, in the parallel to this, I'm sorry, um, and then in chapter 9, there's going to be a feast day for the feasting of, of Purim throughout the empire, and then a second day of feasting in Susa. And in chapter 
In another parallel, Esther has a, a, coronary, a coronation banquet in chapter 2, and then there's a feast for Mordecai's promotion in chapter 8, so that's the next, next pair. And in the middle of the book is Esther's two feasts for the king and Haman. So we see these nice Hebrew chiastic structure all throughout, all throughout Esther. The feasts are they're prominent in Esther. They're also very prominent throughout the entire Bible. And this feasting chiasm has immense relevance for Christians today, specifically for us, for specifically for this local body on this very day. You see, the Bible actually begins with a feast. In the garden, there was blessed communion with God and all of the food that Adam and Eve, Eve could possibly desire. At the end of the days, at the return of our Lord, we will feast in the house of Zion at the marriage supper of the Lamb in perfect communion with our God. So we've got a parallel there. Until then, we've got tons of feasts. But until then, in the middle, as it were, Christ gave a pair of feasts too. He first gave the apostles a feast upon his body, and then he gave that exact same feast to the church too. We are invited to the Lord's table today on this very day, brothers and sisters. Y'all know me. Y'all know how much I love the Lord's Supper. We are invited to commune with him on this day. We are invited to feast upon his body and blood, enriching our bodies and souls in this present moment and looking forward to our more perfect feast to come. So let us celebrate our Lord on this day and be thankful that he has not left us hungry. Moving on to another point that I wanted to bring up. We should, in our lives, relish the mundane. If you look throughout this chapter, all of the, the displays of God's providence are very mundane things. You know, they're not giant miracles. They're very unremarkable things. God's providence not only appears in mighty miracles, but in completely ordinary day-to-day things. For instance, a king that can't sleep, so he opens up some boring government records. There's almost 8 billion people in the world, each having thousands of interactions each and every day, not even including your thoughts. So it isn't much, much of a stretch to say that literally trillions and trillions of things happen to just humanity each and every day. This doesn't even include animals, plants, other life forms, non-living things, physical forces and atoms that are all, that are all following the laws that God has established in the universe. Literally everything in the universe. I don't know if you know this, but the highest named number, I'm a math guy, most of you know this, the highest named number is actually called a Google. Not the company, it's not even spelled the same way, but that's where they got their name from. G-O-O-G-O-L. This number is a one followed by a hundred zeros. At least this many things happen in a relatively short amount of time. Truly innumerable is the totality of history and the future as well, and not a single one of these things happen outside of God's decree. His timing is perfect, and this is a great hope for Christians. For we would truly be paralyzed if we were to attempt to consider how all of this could happen without our infinite God, who, thank God, is also infinite in his goodness. Knowing that he provides allows us to enjoy a true peace about the direction of history. You know, think about it in your own life where you are right now. You're likely to be able to draw a line through a specific chain of events that have eventually led to some aspect of your life now. How did you first truly hear the gospel? How did you meet your spouse? 
Why are you in this specific geographic location? What circumstances led to your current job? Many events, some mundane, some extraordinary, and some in between, happen in the precise order that they needed to happen to lead you to this very moment that we're at on this Lord's Day. Just to, to give you an example from my own life to, to show you the providence of God. So, some of you know, I played football for a long time, for about 10 years through middle school and high school. I played two years in, in junior college in, in South Mississippi, and I was all set to go to Louisiana Tech to finish two years playing football there and then um, major in a, being an engineering major there. And so I get over there, and I'm a week before I'm supposed to start classes, and I'm meeting with the offensive line coach, and I have my schedule in hand, and he looks at me and says, um, I think you're going to have to choose whether you want to play football or be an engineer. I'm like, well, I'm not going to the NFL. That makes my decision easier. <laughs> so uh, I said, well, I'll see you all later. And so I wasn't, I wasn't on a football scholarship. I was on an academic scholarship, but I still had a spot on the football team. And I said, well, I'll just go to Mississippi State and pay in-state tuition and not go here. And so I ended up not doing that. And so in Starkville is where I met my wife. <laughs> in Starkville is where I actually, in another instance of God's providence, I started out as an engineering major, a software engineer, got half a semester in, absolutely hated it. I was on a scholarship from, get this, and I shudder to think about it right now, the NSA, the National Security Agency. And it, I mean, I, if it hadn't happened, I'd probably be in Washington, D.C., working for the National Security Agency, which makes me, you know, makes me uh, both uh, fearful and laugh at the same time. Uh, anyway... In the course of that, I swapped over to being a math major and found statistics and found my current job now. And I would, probably wouldn't be in Jackson. I probably wouldn't have met my wife all if that football situation hadn't have worked out. Also, in Starville is where I, I first discovered the doctrines of grace in a, in a formal way. So I was, I was raised in a church that didn't really hold to a lot of formal doctrine, but they were solid for the most part, but they, the pastor generally taught most of the things that we would teach in the doctrines of grace, but didn't formalize them in any way. And it was in a, a New Testament class in Starkville that was first formalized for me, uh, taught by a man who used to be a member of this church, and then um, joined a church up there that you know, further cemented it, and whenever we went down here, that pastor recommended that we come to this church. All of this because... Football didn't work out, right? And so that's just a, a nice, specific, tight example of the providence of God in my own life. Even though the promise of Jeremiah twenty nine eleven, which, you know, I think is a misused verse in a lot of cases, was specifically applied to the exiles in Babylon, we can, be, we can rest assured that God has promised us ultimate good because of his providence and his holy character. We have to... Hold fast that God is a good God and he has promised his people ultimate good. But switching, beer, switching gears just a little bit, I'm going to maybe teach you a new word today. It's a, I'm assuming it's a new word to a lot of you because it was a new word to me as I was doing the study for this, this lesson. Uh, the word is peripety. Has anyone ever heard of this before? I'd never heard of the word peripety. But this is apparently, this is a literary device, and it's, you, it's defined as a sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of something. It's very closely related to irony, I suppose. But peripety, 
the sudden turn of events that reverses the expected outcome of something, especially in a literary work. And obviously there is peripety all over the book of Esther. Here in chapter 6, we have the beginning of many reversals to follow. Haman comes to the king either in the middle of the night or very early in the morning seeking to kill Mordecai. Not only does he not get permission to kill Mordecai, he ends up publicly honoring him. This chapter itself, like we've already said, is the pivot point of the narrative, specifically occurring on the king's sleepless night. Now, usually the pivot point of a story occurs at some dramatic event. In most narratives, that's where the pivot point happens. A lot of times at the story's climax, or even the highest point of dramatic tension, which is not necessarily always the same thing. Now, you can argue that the highest points of dramatic tension in the narrative of Esther comes when Esther enters the throne room at, in chapter 5, perhaps to lose her life. But really, the, the climax of the story is going to be in chapter 7, which we'll get do next week, when our hero Esther confronts the villain Haman to his face. But neither of these things is actually the pivot point of the narrative. Instead, the pivot point of this peripety is this completely unremarkable bit of insomnia that Xerxes experiences. This is where the story actually begins to turn. And this actually is a part of the brilliance of the book. By making the pivot point of the story a quote-unquote insignificant event, the author is taking the focus away from human action. No human has caused this reversal. No one in the story, not even the most powerful person of the empire, is in control. An unseen power is controlling this reversal of destiny, this peripety. It's all controlled by God. God's plans cannot be thwarted. He is not capricious. He cannot be controlled or manipulated. He is the power in control at all times. Nothing surprises him, and all of his perfect and righteous plans come to fruition, all to his good glory. Perhaps the Jews had forgot that God was still ruling history at this point. They were used to God working mighty miracles to deliver them and fulfill his promises. Why is he so silent now? Doesn't he know that his people are about to be destroyed? God's people need to hold fast both to the promises of God and the nature of God. God is truthful, God is trustworthy, God is honest, and God is pure, and he does not break his covenants. He didn't need to work big, showy miracles to save his people. He often does, but he doesn't need to. God was using the ordinary events of life to fulfill his covenant promises. He can always be trusted. We are the same way. We are prone to despair like the Jews. Why is God so silent now? Doesn't he know that his people are being oppressed right now? To quote Paul in Romans 11, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. Or to quote God in Isaiah 55, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And then God again in Job 38. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsels by words without knowledge? Dress for action like a man, I will question you, and you make it known to me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Or who stretched the line upon it? 
On what were its bases sunk, or who laid its cornerstone, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for glory? If we, in our pride, doubt God's plan and character, we need to respond like Job. This is how Job responds in chapter 40. Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once. I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. We have to trust that God is good and God does bring good for his people. Our God has a wonderful plan that cannot be thwarted. We need to just have a measure of faith and trust in him. You see, the ultimate moment of peripety actually came at Calvary. The cross of Jesus Christ is the pivot point of the greatest reversal in history. It's the place where our sorrow has been turned to joy. And if you are a partaker of God's covenant, you should hold fast, grip, and never let go of the promises given in Romans 8, 35-39. Where Paul says, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword... As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God and Christ Jesus our Lord. No matter what our present circumstances are, Christ is there to provide relief. He is a balm to the soul, and we can be assured of our final destiny with him. In a glorious reversal of fortunes, in an unthinkable peripety, we have been saved from the depths of hell, completely cast away from God, the objects of his wrath, into glorious life, worthy to be called sons and enjoying all the benefits bestowed thereupon. We were wallowing in our sinfulness like a pig in the mire and loving every minute of our rebellion against God, damned for all eternity. But God, in his grace and mercy, reached down and offered us forgiveness, and those sins have been cast away further than we could ever imagine. Thanks be to our Heavenly Father for the grace bestowed upon us. Let us go worship him.